Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, joining us now is an author of many books. I've seen his name many different places, but he's got a brand new book out, uh, Untenable, The True Story of White Ethnic Flight from America's Cities. Uh, his name is Jack Cashel, uh, Cashel sorry, and um, rhymes, as he said, with uh, Dashel, if you remember that guy from politics. But anyway, Jack uh, Cashel is with us, and we want to talk about this, and it's especially relevant based on what has just happened in Supreme Court decisions. Tell us a little bit about it, Jack. Right, you know, because I had, um, basically, I'm just going to show you the book here. It's uh, untenable. I, I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, during the fall of Newark, and I, I watched it firsthand. And uh, what I uh, was able to uh, come away with was a experiential reaction to what I was seeing. This is in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and then when I read the Supreme Court decisions, which I did, which is hard to read because they're <laughs> they the the absence of facts sort of pound my fact filled brain like waves <laughs> against the shore uh, by uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson and uh, so does Sonia Sotomayor, is that they deny this happened. They they insist that all of the disparities between white and black income are rooted in the past and rooted in uh you know jim crow slavery etc uh the homesteading act i mean they're throwing all of these things up against the wall but neither of them hints at the reversal that occurred uh, in black fortunes during the 1960s and that has continued to occur to this day yeah it's right. uh and it's an amazing kind of denialism. You were just talking about it right here. You know, you're a climate denier. You're, you're denying <laughs> a. You're a skeptic of a phenomenon that is based on dubious computer projections, right? You can't yeah. recall the denialist. These people, much like Holocaust denialists, deny a real, tragic, concrete phenomenon, and that is the destruction of America's cities, and from 1960 to 1980, a destruction that continues to this day. And and some people, I pointed out last week, somebody said that uh, Brown Jackson is kind of like uh, Harris. And, and the the way that yeah. she approached this, she said something ludicrous about uh, unemployment and uh, how to, you know, 40% increase because they didn't have affirmative action or something like that. I said, well, stop and think about that. You would notice that if it were that high and uh, the fact that it's doubled it, you know, you would, uh, it, it just absolutely makes no sense whatsoever uh to uh the, the the you know just basic logic uh, the the facts that she threw out there the numbers she threw out there 
couldn't possibly be true. She just uh, pulled them up out of thin air. But, you know, you're talking and about- And to the degree that the numbers have any relevance, uh, they uh, hinge on the fact that she's denying why there is this disparity. Yes. So if, if 64% of the black children in America are living in single parent homes, and 16% of the Asian children are living in 16 single parent homes, there's going to be disparity in our outcomes, even if they're genetically equal, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be disparity in the single mother's ability to, to uh, create equity. Because last time we tried to put single mothers in homes, we got the subprime crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. It's and they do it all over again. They could, and that's they do it by ignoring the reality that I lived as an adolescent in Newark. Not just me, but millions of people did all across the country in cities like Newark, big cities in like Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, New York. I've heard from people all across the country, David, and our experiences are. Uh, remarkably similar. And, and Congressman Burgess has talked about that. How there was a vibrant yeah. uh, middle class in the black communities, and and it was destroyed by the uh, you know the Great Society programs of LBJ. As a matter of fact, it, it's kind of surprising to me. You know, there was that that book that was written um, uh, by Charles Murray, Losing Ground. Uh, yes. And, uh, you know, that was uh, something that was used at the time of the Reagan administration to talk about how this is not working. It's actually counterproductive. It's hurting the people that it was intended to help. And yet it's amazing to see that, um, you know, he's now some of the people out there pushing universal basic income. It's like, what is going on? You know, this is that's just a, a massive welfare program for everybody. And, and that's yeah. what is really concerning about this, because these people have not learned anything. Even some of the people who had learned something about it at one point in time uh, seem to have forgotten that lesson. And they're pushing us in this direction. And they're going to extend this to everybody. This is not just going to be for the poor people. They want, with universal basic income, they want to breed dependency for everybody, don't they? No, I mean, right. Why not subvert all families equally? That way, there'll, there'll be a lesser <laughs> gap between the races. Yeah. No, I, I uh, in Untenable, uh, I tell it as a personal story. It's this part memoir, uh, but part social history. And I got the title from a friend of mine. Uh, I lived my block in 1960, and I was 12 years old was like the perfect urban block. You know, it was integrated. On my street, there were immigrants from 14 different countries. I'm checking the census. I found this out. Um, there were 363 people in the block. And in 1950, that's the last year a census is accessible. Uh, there were 85 households on my working class block. And it was an integrated block. 83 of those households had a male head of household, yeah. a married male head of household, 83 out of 85. Hmm. Out of those 83, two were retired, two were unemployed, 79 were working. And uh, the census lists their jobs. There was no blue collar job in America, this side of lumberjacking that was not represented on my block. <laughs> Casket making, rubber molding, hucksters. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, <laughs> And my favorite, there were 30 women who were working outside the home. My favorite, though, of all the, all the, all the job titles was janitress, right? Oh, what? So here's a woman who embraced not only her job, uh -huh. but her sex, right? Uh, and She's what was it? She's a janitor. She's a janitress. Oh, janitress. <laughs> okay. I got, I've never even then, heard that word before. <laughs> and then a dozen years later, now this is 1960. Everything's smooth. We got commerce. And all the shops are filled. People are... You know, it's going to church and uh, it's buses and 
movie theaters and vibrant community, and like a thousand other communities across America in 1960. And then in about 1972, my last friend left the block. And I asked him, now he's a Democrat, so he's arguing against interest. And uh, we were a bunch of us talking. And this is just last year. And I said, Artie, um, so why did you and your widowed mother finally leave the block? You guys were the last ones out. And he said, well, Jack, uh, it became, and he's searching for the word, untenable. Mm. And I said, what do you mean by untenable? He said, well, when your mother's been mugged for the second time, that's untenable. Wow. When your home is invaded for the second time, that's untenable. And I said, thank you, Artie. You just gave me my title, you know? So uh, <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, and, but what's interesting too, uh, David, is that this uh, exodus of white ethnics from the cities in Detroit, Chicago, Philadelphia, New York created a, a, a dramatic um, political turn. These people, we all grew up as Democrats. And once we went through this process and saw what was happening, and saw the media lined up against us, saw the progressives lined up scolding us mm -hmm. for leaving, shaming us for leaving, white flight. Uh, I would say 80 to 90% of the people that I've communicated with, and I talked about 50 people, are now Republicans. Wow. wow. In fact, uh, you know, growing, growing up in Newark, New Jersey, uh, since the uh, the close-in real estate was too expensive, it had already been well-occupied, and so the people who left had to flee south down the Garden State Parkway, 50 or 60 miles into these uh, slapdash suburbs being thrown up in the, the hinterlands in the Jersey Shore, the, the Pine Barren area. And uh, so as a result of that, Ocean County now, New Jersey, which is where they also filmed the show Jersey Shore, uh, is the reddest county in New Jersey. It's, it's as red as West Virginia. Wow. They vote two to one for Trump both wow. times right yeah and uh on the seaside heights boardwalk they have shops dedicated to trump paraphernalia <laughs> uh, you wouldn't know that from think you think of new jersey as a blue state which it is because of the the big city the controls and the big cities but these people have exiled and it turned them as a and yet no one talks to them no one has ever talked to them before no one's wow. ever asked them why they left yeah yeah and, and of course you know one of the reasons that they're able to uh as they see the city's being destroyed by these political uh, policies. Uh, they can flee and they can go further south and it increases their time perhaps for commute, for their work and that type of thing. But they have that ability to do that. That's one of the things that they're trying to take away from us. They want to pack us into these cities. I refer to these smart cities and stuff as Indian reservations because you're uh, not going to be able to That's a good parallel. Yeah, you're not going to be able to the flee. I mean, cities, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. They're going to lock you yeah, up. Yeah, they control that. you. That's right. Right. So you got all these they put you in elevators. They put you on, uh, uh, you know, uh, public transportation, and you're controlled. That's right. Yeah, as I was saying earlier today, uh, just imagine lockdowns without any private cars. You know, next yeah. time they do that, if we don't have private cars, so you got all these. Sentiment. And where, where are you, David? Where are you located? Oh, I'm in Tennessee. I, I fled to the hills. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people have fled to Tennessee. You know that, yes. right? Oh, yeah. It's very, very Republican. And, uh, yeah, we came through here with all the lockdown stuff. I mean, so people were not buying the mask stuff and the officials were not pushing that stuff. And so, yeah, we're, uh, we, we, <laughs> we got out of Texas even out of, cause I was in Austin. 
by the time. Yeah, well, Austin's as yeah. bad as anybody else. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's like California. But yeah, it's. Uh, you know, there's a, as I'm sure you're aware, there's a second, we're into White Flight 2.0 now, uh, but we don't call it that because the people who are fleeing are them, you know? Yeah. They're the progressive elites, <laughs> the ones who can work remotely. And White Flight 1.0, my White Flight, uh, it was the blue collar people who left. Today, the blue collar people have to stay behind because you can't, you know, replace a sewer pipe remotely, you know. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, but the major cities and not and and the woker the city, the more people they've left lost yeah. San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, they're hemorrhaging millions of people collectively, overwhelmingly white. And yet the media does not dare label this as white flight right yeah. that's something only the underclass gets labeled with and that's right so uh myself and a lot of my friends we've borne a grudge for a long time and uh, fortunately uh finally and untenable i gotta plug my book here mm -hmm. i get to tell the story well and you mentioned uh, as you were talking about this and your experience there in, in new jersey that the book is about uh you, you talk about the fatherlessness and and that is such yeah. a key thing and we see how this is the vitriol and the hatred uh, of fathers. You know, we now have, um, uh, you know, a, an archbishop, of course, saying, well, you know, the Our Father is real troubling because the patriarchy in it. And we have Robert Downey Jr. saying, yeah, men are just so awful. We've got to have a matriarchy and all the rest of the stuff. But it, is, it began as a very subtle attack on fathers, didn't it? Where Uncle Sam came in to provide for the family. I think that's really where you start looking at this LG, LB... This LBJ uh, program, I was, I've said LGBT for so long, <laughs> but uh, that's really where where this started coming in and started breaking up the family, didn't it? With the, um, the that's great you're exactly right, David. And uh, circa 1950, something like 80 85 percent of black children were living in with two parent homes. Mm -hmm. I was a paper boy in Newark, so I went into all these homes. And they said, you know, like they were, we just thought of them as a different ethnic, ethnic group. Mm -hmm. We didn't think of them as. This is into the into this early 60s. Uh, and then, but these programs had started locally at various places. LBJ sort of packaged them together and then um, expanded them. Uh, and under the uh, rubric of the Great Society, and it was his effort to buy the black vote for the foreseeable future, which he put in extremely crude terms, but I'm not going to repeat on the air. Uh, <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, he seems to have succeeded he succeeded by making or helping to make or accelerating uh, the destruction of the black family and making single mothers especially dependent on the government and uh, adverse to voting against any uh, you know, political party that would threaten that dependency, that would yes. threaten their, their sustenance. It's a, it's a great racket. And unfortunately, uh, for the black community, especially, and for anyone who lives near it, it's worked. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you can certainly see the war on the family now as, as you know, they're, they're hostile to parents being involved with curriculum at PTA meetings and all the rest. You know, they're now extremists and dangerous and that type of right. thing. But, you know, it really did begin uh, in a very subtle way uh, with uh, the, and what looked like it was going to, it was intended to help people. That was what was so insidious about it was how subtle it was. And yet it yeah. provided these perverse incentives that really started unraveling the family along with entertainment and all the rest of these things. But that was a, a core thing going back to, um, uh, to that government policy that you, that you've just been talking about. Uh, so right. Cause if, uh, 
you know, and I worked for the Newark Housing Authority. I mean, so I saw this stuff up close. Wow. And I started chronicling what I was seeing. Um, and it was disastrous. I mean, you didn't have to wait 50 years to see it was going to be a disaster. By 1970, the handwriting was on the wall. So Newark, for instance, which had 24 homicides in uh, 1950, by 1970, it had 158. And the population had shrunk. You know, and um, so you see that now in the debate for reparations, right? Mm -hmm. they, they're into 60s nihilism, too. They have to pretend that what happened in the 1960s, and I use that generically, I mean, expands a little bit each way, and which their uh, civil rights leaders cheered on was responsible for their own undoing. So, um, it, and it's maddening, you know, I was, I was in a televised debate on reparations last month, David, and uh, it was very telling. They had a, this is a televised on our local PBS station in Kansas City, where I live now. Uh, they had a very hard time finding a second panelist to join me. Right? <laughs> Nobody wanted to touch this. They're afraid, right? It's so insane. White people are afraid to, to speak out. Well, there's and no as a result of this, you're going to be seeing reparations committees succeeding and getting their way. Yes. As they've already done in Evanston, Illinois. Yeah. Uh, we had the Evanston representative there as part of the debate. Yeah, and whenever I mention like uh, the Great Society or the 60s or the consequences of that, they would act as though they didn't hear me. Like they just talk, go back to talking about Jim Crow and Homestead Act and, you know, mm -hmm. uh, slavery. I mean, those are bad things, I admit it. Right? No, no denying that. But they were competing in the cities like where I grew up. Every kid I knew had a living relative who was born in another country. Uh, so we're all migrants in a way. And we had left, some of these people had left uh, more horrible places than the blacks who were coming up uh, from this great, from the South and the great migration. We had all come from bad places. We come to a, a city like uh, Newark or any or American city looking for freedom, for opportunity, for security, for the rule of law. Mm -hmm. And for a period of time, we had that collectively, blacks and whites together. And um, then we didn't. Yeah. Yeah, my wife is uh, from uh, New York, uh, Long Island area. And, and everybody that uh, she knew you know, was uh, uh, like second generation, first or second generation immigrants. Uh, her yeah. family came from Italy and Poland and, and things like that. And yet, you know, when you look at this reparations thing, there's absolutely no way that it could be practically applied. You, you can see what the agenda is pretty clearly with this. You go back and you look at the... Uh, the Great Society programs of LBJ, uh, you could uh, kind of, uh, you know, get the idea that what they're trying to do is build dependency, and that's what they did do. Uh, right. But, you know, it looked like it was going to be something beneficial, but this doesn't even have a way that they can actually uh, apply it because, as you're talking about, all the people who have come here, you know, uh, well after slavery, you're going to come after them simply because of the color of their skin. And uh, then when you talk about other people like the Obamas, you know, uh, how do you make these kinds of adjustments? You know, he says, uh, uh clearly he's half white. So what do you do uh, with a, a situation like that? And, uh, and his black half yeah. had nothing to do with the American slave experience. That's right. That's right. Same thing with Kamala Harris, right? Yeah. I mean, did she get money? Cause her, her mother was Jamaican, you know, and, uh, and there's a good percentage now of, of black Americans, uh, who come from either Africa or the, uh, West Indies, they tend to be more conservative and they also tend to be more productive 
because they weren't uh, corrupted by the whole welfare dependency program. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it becomes this thing that is, is absolutely unworkable. And, and I think the yeah. only purpose of it is really to, to sow strife within different groups against each other. Uh, because there's That's no way exactly that they, right. can ever, they can ever do it. So it's always going to be a perpetual irritant uh, that they can mine for political purposes, isn't it? Right. The, uh, when I was in the reparations debate with this woman from Evanston, where they have a program in play, uh, and Evanston had a 7% Trump vote. I mean, so that tells you something about Evanston. It's a university town, but it's also an affluent Chicago suburb. That combination is deadly. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that means there's money to suck and, yeah. and people willing to give it. Uh, so uh, what they started to do was then they, they worked redlining and they decided that redlining was part of the whole legacy, even though that practice ended in 1968. And 82% of the people who, who were redlined were white, but that's irrelevant. <laughs> Only blacks were eligible in Evanston. Uh, they had to prove that they were legacies, that is, that they were their parents were in Evanston up to 1968. Uh, and then uh, they had to prove they were black. And then, then they were given $25,000 for first it was to be for a down payment on a home or home repairs. But then they decided that was too much hassle because they'd have to check. So they just decided to give them 20, everyone $25,000. <laughs> I mean, this is a racket. I mean, you know, it's, yeah, it has, uh, uh, it, it's got elements of universal basic income in it except it's not yeah. universal. It's there to create uh, racial division and ethnic division and strife. Uh, so, you know, right. and that's really been the, the tactic of the Marxists here in this country is to set things up along ethnic and racial lines uh, because uh, they, they feel, and I think they're right, it's going to work better than their class warfare that they had in Europe. We don't have that here. So they exploit that kind of division. You mentioned, we were talking about uh, Obama and you have in your book uh, something about Michelle Obama and yeah. uh, how a uh, black flight problem is going to affect her potential run for president. Cause we all know, I, I agree with you that she's, she's going to run at some point in time. Uh, who knows? It might even be this next time because the, the articles about Biden are when should he get out? <laughs> not not right. whether he should, but when that's uh, what I saw in the drudge report, which is pretty good aggregator for mainstream media. Now, when is he going to get out? So I don't know. When is she going to run? Well, and her bench is so shallow. Yeah. I mean, it's either it looks like either she or Gavin Newsom. I know. And if and if you're the poster child representing San Francisco, I'm, I wouldn't want to brag about that. <laughs> no, but uh, Michelle Obama had very responsible parents, uh, Marion and uh, Frazier. Her father was, uh, you know, allegedly worked for as a water engineer for the city of Chicago, which is a front job for his work as a precinct captain in Daily Machine. Her mother was a stay-at-home mom. They were they had enough money to do that. Uh, Michelle grew up in a uh, in a uh, a black co-op for the middle class. It was the, a wonder of its age called the Parkway Gardens. But by the time she was old enough for school, that neighborhood had so deteriorated that the original settlers were getting out, and they were all black, right? Wow. And so what uh, Michelle's mother did, and this was a classy misdemeanor, she enrolled her in, in a school like a 15-minute drive away from her neighborhood because even though the neighborhood school was brand new, shiny school, the project kids were going there and the mom didn't want Michelle and Craig, her brother, in with those kids. Understandable, actually. Mm -hmm. So they drive her down 15 minutes away to a neighborhood that had been Jewish, but was rapidly transitioning. Enroll her in school there. And then two years later, they moved down. There's black flight. They were fleeing Parkway Gardens for the same reason that white families were fleeing 
places like North Woodlawn in Chicago or South Shore, which is where Michelle ends up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it came to high school, they didn't. Uh, the Robinsons didn't want to send their children to the all-black high school two blocks away. So they sent Craig to a Catholic school, even though they're not Catholic. They had to pay for that. Marion had to take a second job to pay for him to avoid the local public school. And they sent Michelle like 90 minutes each way downtown to a magnet school. And Mm -hmm. that's classic. I mean, it's just that is what responsible parents do. Mm -hmm. Another uh, woman who lived in that same neighborhood uh, was uh, Donda West in South Shore in the Chicago neighborhood. And her son goes, you know, he's 10 years old. He's out riding his bike, gets jumped by a bunch of black kids. They cut the uh, tires of his bike, you know, and beat him up, mm. send him home. And Don DeWest says, if they can do that to Kanye, we're getting out of here. Mm. She says in her book, she says, call it black flight, call it what you want. We're gone. Right. Wow. This is Kanye West mother. Yeah. Uh, wow. In my town. And I tell this story in the book because it's a very poignant story. And it's so typical of what black families went through was uh, a woman uh, named Sissy. Uh, Dugard was her, na- her uh, name at birth. Uh, she's the one of eight children. Her father comes up in the Great Migration, hardworking guy, works at a foundry throughout the Depression, supports his eight children, takes them all to church, takes care of his ailing mother. Uh, Sissy grows up, uh, you know, really hardworking, God-fearing, you know, church-going woman. She marries John Houston, a fellow named John Houston, whose family lived in my neighborhood. And uh, they have their daughter, Whitney, right? Whitney Houston. Oh, yeah. And so in her memoir about Whitney Houston, Sissy talks about uh, how they lived in this cozy little village. You know, it was an integrated village in Newark, and they loved it. Everyone was nice to each other. And then the crime started coming in. The drugs started coming in. And then she said, then the riots come in 1967. And she says, we've got to get out of here. Three years later, they moved to the suburbs. That, that was what happened with your black, with your white, with your Asian, Hispanic, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just that the white people were singled out and shamed for leaving. Yes. And they still bear that stigma. White flight, you know? Yeah. Well, that's always been the case. You know, people have, uh, going back to Jefferson's, I mentioned frequently, you know, he was not big on cities. Uh, <laughs> he said they threatened the wealth, the health, and the liberty of mankind. And so uh, you know, th- what made it possible really was the car. And so you started seeing that happen a lot as people... Uh, got out of the big cities and got into the suburbs. The urban planners really hate that. And oh, they uh, hate it. You know, yeah. They hate it with a passion. And uh, yeah. I remember the guy who is uh, uh, the CEO of Lyft. He used to be an urban planner before he became the CEO of Lyft. And uh, so he he wrote a paper talking about how cars are the most evil invention of mankind and <laughs> right. cities were the best thing that was ever invented. It's like, what? How yeah. upside down and backwards that is. But that's the model. I think the thing that is interesting about your book, Untenable, is the fact that uh, people understand, uh, this by the experience, they understand that they need to get out of these bad areas. They have the yes. ability to do it now. And, and as I see these, these mega cities, the 15 minute cities, the smart cities and all the rest of the stuff, their impulse is to try to concentrate us into these areas, but everybody white and black understand that that's not what they want. They have the ability to get out. And I think it's going to be, if we can get people to understand where this is headed, nobody's going to have it because nobody wants it. And we've seen people voting with their feet and they need to be able to understand where this is going. But I, I think it's a positive thing when you, when you look at how 
you had this flight out of the cities that you're, you're right about and untenable. I think that's a good thing because people already have that uh, experience. They have that um, uh, learning experience in them, and they know that they don't want to be packed into these cities. We just get the, have to get them to understand uh, where this is all headed, I think. No, you're entirely right, and we're seeing it all happen all over again. Uh, in my generation, we learned as adolescents. So, for instance, I commuted to high school in New York City. I won a scholarship to a, a New York City high school. And uh, when it was time, I met my wife in graduate school at Purdue, and I loved Indiana. It was such a nice, bucolic kind of place. And I said, when we were looking for jobs, I said, no big cities. I'm sorry. I'm, I want nothing to do with them. <laughs> yeah. uh, now, I, and here's, here was the, the rub. This is about 1975. We're finishing graduate school. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Uh, white males weren't employable in my field at all, period. Mm. We were getting letters. They were, they were bragging about how we have no interest in you if you're white and male. Yeah. So I had to follow my wife wherever she could get a job. And <laughs> we ended up in Kansas City because I needed a city big enough to employ me, but not so big that it would smother us. A, uh, you know, a city in which you could easily have two cars and not not be an issue, because mm-hmm. uh, I did not want anything to do with that that Manhattan's lifestyle. You know, that kind of New York, New Jersey style. Uh, and what happens is when you live in those areas, David, it it almost forces you to think uh, communistically. You know, you you're always thinking collectively. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you're riding an elevator or taking a subway, and that's why those cities were such. Uh, not so much hotbeds of actual COVID, but hotbeds of COVID paranoia. Yeah, And they welcomed almost that kind of draconian suppression of freedom and movement. I don't know how they did it. Because I, I, I was, I just ignored COVID from day one. And, uh, and I, I tried to lead a public protest on day one, actually. <laughs> and then I found out that most of my friends were not quite as freedom loving as I thought they were, you know. So, oh, yeah, uh, that, that the lockdown was the antithesis of everything this country is about. It's just amazing. Yeah. And, and there was obviously nobody was dead from it. You know, we it was all uh, just projection. It was all based on computer models, which is very alarming when you look at the climate alarmism that they might uh, use these computer models to lock us down again. But, you know, yeah, when, I know what, in fact, uh, when uh, I well, I went on Facebook and I. I have a fair amount of followers on Facebook, and I, I, uh, I said this is literally day one of the lockdown in Kansas City, and I said I'm willing to be the public face of protest. Anyone wants to join me? I said <laughs> we're shutting down our economy, and between the states of Missouri and Kansas, there have been four deaths so far. Yeah. Right? This is crazy. Yeah. And then one of the commenters wrote in, "I hope you're number five. I know. Right? I know. I That's know. the way they were thinking already. And, and, you know, and, part of that is you look at the big cities and I, I think it's kind of a natural reaction that as people get packed together, it's kind of like the elevator phenomenon, right? You pack right. a bunch of people in an elevator, nobody wants to look at each other. You know, you look yeah. at the ceiling or you look at the floor. If you get a little <laughs> right, bit right. of space there, you know, people start will yeah. relate to each other as human beings. But the more you pack people in, so I think that's kind of a general phenomenon about the cities. You know, they're like elevators. <laughs> nobody, nobody wants to know anybody or anything. And so everybody keep them at, at a distance. And if you can't keep them at a distance 
physically because you're packed into a city, you keep them at a, at a distance socially. So they naturally fell into that social distancing thing. Right, exactly. And to your point earlier about the uh, what planners want to do, they want to put us in those situations. For about a bunch of years, maybe a dozen years or more, I, uh, through a, a regional business magazine that I'm affiliated with, I moderated a monthly roundtable of uh, CEOs in various industries. And a couple times a year, we do urban planning. And their model city, uh, I mean, and they were openly expressing, why can't Kansas City be more like Portland? Right? <laughs> that, that was the model. And I said, Portland's going too far. I said, I said, in Portland, I said, the sign that the city has gone bad is that when they have one mime, when they have a second street mime, one mime, the city can endure. When they have second mime, <laughs> then the city's in trouble. I should have said, when the first Antifa chapter shows up, you know, this yeah, city's in trouble. Yeah, yeah. Or you but got Portland a- was the model. Ten years ago, I only visited Portland. Have you ever been to Portland? Oh, Maybe. yeah, yeah. The, the guy with, that rides a unicycle wearing a, um, a kilt playing uh, bagpipes on fire. Yeah, that's, uh, that's Portland. <laughs> I was there ten years ago. By then, it was still a pretty charming, quirky, eccentric city. And I distrusted a city in which people would line up for two hours in advance to get a donut. But nonetheless, it was, uh, <laughs> I, that was a sign, I guess. But uh, yeah, yeah. And I was visiting a black friend of mine, which is even... More curious because there's almost very few black people in Portland. Uh, and he was treated like a, a visiting sun god, you know, when he went through the neighborhood. <laughs> but, uh, and then in, they, it's self-destructed. Who could believe San Francisco would do what it did to itself? Yeah. It was my favorite city. Yeah. I've been here 15 times. You know, I wrote a book on California back called What's the Matter with California? And I didn't include San Francisco as kind of a bright spot, I thought, you know, but. Wow. Yeah, you look at Portland. Los, destroyed Los Angeles. You look at Portland, and they have the signs up. You know, keep Portland weird, and and yeah. they do the same thing in Austin. And you right. know that that donut shop, the zombie donut shop, or something. They open that up in Austin. And it's like the, the family, We got to get out of here. <laughs> it's that's a sign. Yeah, and Portland was the voodoo donut shop. That's right, voodoo. That was what it was. Yeah, not zombie. Voodoo. Oh, it's a chain. That's even worse. It's not yeah. even you know unique to uh, you know. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, a, it's when a Ben and Jerry's opens up in your neighborhood, you know, it's time to leave. <laughs> right next to the to the zombie donut shop. Uh, you were talking about, of course, again, it comes a lot of this comes down to transportation. And one of the things that I find interesting is, um, you know, the racist highways that you talk about in your book. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, the rationale for that is totally contradictory to what they want to do with the 15 minute cities, right? They're, they're saying, well, you're by the traffic is bypassing our neighborhood. So we got to tear down these highways rather than building any more infrastructure. They want to tear down what was there to kind of preserve, uh, you know, a pedestrian area. And at the same time, they're giving us this other thing. Well, we don't want the, any cars on the streets. We want people to be able to walk around or ride bicycles or whatever. But again, right. it's just this, you know, the racist highway stands in stark contrast to everything else that they say they want in these new cities. Let me flash the book here. An untenable, mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, I mean, it's one myth after another that I got to expose. Because, oddly, no one had written this book before. No one had interviewed the people who fled the cities asked them why they fled. No one had examined the whole notion of the racist highway. Mm-hmm. Pete Buttigieg, you know, was famously talks about, you know, uh, highways built on a, a foundation of hate and all this. And <laughs> in the myth, and Buttigieg says this out loud, uh, the city, you know, the highway planners built these highways to divide white and black neighborhoods, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I lost my home 
childhood home to a highway. We had to move because of a highway. It's a I-280. And what I-280 did was cut the white northern half of my neighborhood, Roseville, off from the white southern half of my neighborhood, Roseville. One other interstate came through Newark at that time was I-78. And what that did is cut the white Jewish half of, of uh, the neighborhood off from the white southern uh, Jewish half of the southern part of the neighborhood. Two highways coming through a city that was 35% black, and both times they missed the black neighborhoods, right? <laughs> I mean, if they're racist highway makers, they're crappy at their jobs. I mean, they, they missed. Uh, and in Kansas City, where I live, we have more freeway miles per capita than any city in the world, which makes it easy to live there. Uh, there is not a single highway that that uh, that separates races or ethnicities. Mm-hmm. And 90% of the people displaced were white. Wow. And that's true across the nation. I looked nationwide to see if I could find the racist highway, David. Couldn't find one. <laughs> Finally, the, uh, uh, the the Biden administration identifies their first uh, you know, plan to take out a racist highway. And this racist highway simply goes through a black neighborhood that you know was built 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Who knows what the neighborhood was like then? But they went through white neighborhoods and went through black neighborhoods. And I read the, the early plans that took my house, and they were so, at that time, indifferent to uh, with the, the havoc they were wrecking, you know, going right through viable neighbors, destroying them. Yeah. And the reason the motivator was, in a place like Newark especially, the dreamers and the schemers met, and the schemers got their way, 90% federal money to mm-hmm. build a highway through your neighborhood, 90% federal money to demolish a slum and build a housing project. Uh, so you had the, in Newark, the Boyardo family, which was the model for uh, the Soprano, because David Chase admits as much. <laughs> they set up the Boyardo uh, demolition company and the Boyardo <laughs> construction company. And the the city fathers are, you know, funneling, uh, are giving them their contracts, taking their cut, in the meantime, we're getting big high rises and we're getting highways, right? And city, you know, they talk about public-private partnerships. This is the way they work in the real world. Yeah. You know, yeah. You got you got scoundrels on both ends. You got uh, both on the private and the public ends. I mean, there were some people with good intentions, but they get run over very quickly. Well, it's kind of interesting, you know. You talk about crony capitalism, public-private partnerships, all the rest of this stuff. You know, gangsterism, all the rest. None of that changes. But it seems like what changes is. That uh, the goal at the time, you know, back in the 60s when they were doing this stuff, they wanted to build infrastructure. Uh, now they yeah. want to tear it down. And so they will well, still come out. With, yeah, they'll come out with the federal matching funds and they'll find the same people, you know, who will do the demolition, but then they don't build right. anything, you know. And, and that's the key about all this stuff that is so crazy. And at the center of it, the rationale for destroying things is racism. You know, that's really what the, these right. racist highways that, uh, I call him booty gay. Cause I had trouble uh, pronouncing his name <laughs> when he first, uh, appeared on the public scene. So I thought, well, you know, gay. I did the audio, I, I did the audio book for, uh, untenable and, and, uh, cause it's, it's in large part memoir. I mean, so I felt mm-hmm. it was essential that I do it. Uh, and when I went back, I had uh, some people review and they said, up, oh, you mispronounced Buttigieg, you know. <laughs> so I looked that one up, and I, in other words, it costs about a hundred dollars. So it's about a hundred dollar fix. I really hated to do it. I said, I don't care how to pronounce it. You know, let the, let it stand. I said Buttigieg. You know, it's Buttigieg, Buttigieg. Okay, Buttigieg, yeah. Buttigieg. 
Yeah. And I used the name half a dozen times. So to go in, put Buttigieg back in place a half a dozen times. <laughs> uh, I was crazy. And um, and he's unchallenged when he says these things, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is kind of interesting, you know, again, they, they don't, they're not interested. And of course we could never have the interstate system that we have today. You know, they can't even right. fix potholes anymore. They become so right. dysfunctional. The only thing they can do is tear stuff up and, and they cost us, you know, cost more to tear the stuff up than it costs to build it in the first place. But again, it's always comes back to racism is the excuse that they're going to use for that. Uh, it, it's pretty amazing. Um, so your book came out, uh, July 4th. It's brand new. You've right. already got an audio book of it. Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America's city. But as we talk to you, it's about everybody's flight from the cities and how it is. That's right. It doesn't even have to be white. That's right. The only reason I use white in the title, David, is, and I say so in the book is because only white people were shamed for leaving. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we were shamed by our betters, the people who fled before we did. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that's it's like, I mean. um, you know, they said in the pine on the frontier in his 19th century, they said the further away you were from the frontier, the more sympathetic you were about Indians, right? Yeah. <laughs> the closer up you are, you're dealing with the reality that they're not dealing with. Your mo their mothers haven't been mugged. Yeah. Their homes haven't been invaded. You know, their a little sister's hair hasn't been set on fire. Mm -hmm. And I, in this one classic uh, chapter of the book, and it's, and it's one of my favorites because it's so revealing is that, um, you know, I was, I read all the anti-racist stuff on white flight and they're horrible. I mean, they're vicious attacking white people. Mm -hmm. uh, and they have these like grand conspiracy theories they imagine where white people in the cities are, are block busting and pushing black uh, women in baby carriages and then scaring people out. And they have their friends in the suburbs, you know, moving these people out on highways built by federal uh, racist, you know, and so on. It's crazy stuff, but these people are making millions of dollars doing it. Ibrahim uh, Kendi, uh, Tahanesi Coates, Robin D'Angelo, the white ones bother me most. They're just racketeers that got in on a racket I should have gotten in on, you know, uh, oh, Robin yeah. D'Angelo, please. Oh, yeah, write, write fictional movies and stuff, you know, and right. they, yeah, it's amazing. So anyhow, I find this uh, op-ed in the New York Times from 2017, and this is so classic. This woman's name is Leah Bustan. She's a professor at Princeton. She's just written a book uh, that has won top prize in some competition. And it's basically about white flight. It has some longer, more complicated title. And she begins her essay, her op-ed, by saying, you know, I imagine this, and this is early 2017, right after the election, which is 2016. She goes, I imagine Democratic strategists sitting around the room wondering how it was that Donald Trump won. And they said, was it economics or was it just pure racism? She goes, and in approaching uh, the subject of white flight, I begin with that same premise. Was it you know, economic vulnerability or just pure racism? That's how she starts. And she concludes by saying, and I'm paraphrasing, but I'm very close. She goes, you know, what makes this job difficult is that few of these people left uh, uh, ever talked about why they left. And then she says, in the most condescending bit at all, uh, is that I'm not sure they even knew why, right? <laughs> now, if classism were as uh, taboo at Princeton as racism, uh, Lilia Bustan would have been busted from professor to janitress. You know, it was that bad. <laughs> uh, but she wasn't. And so I, I laughed out loud when I read this. They don't know why. 
I just talked to 50 of them. They knew exactly why. Yeah. So then is the comments. And I'm saying, this is New York Times. I'm not sure I want to read the comments. Probably people saying, oh, Leah, you weren't hard enough on these people, these scoundrels. Instead, it's, she gets ambushed by her own readers. Wow. And person after person, Trenton, New Haven, Detroit, Philadelphia, Chicago, Milwaukee, Boston, all over the country, telling these incredible horror stories of why their neighborhoods became untenable. Very much like the, name, the stories I had been hearing. Everyone had a story, very specific. And it usually involved, I didn't want to move. We loved our neighborhood at first. We loved our neighbors. Then, bang, 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 bang. Enough is enough. It became untenable. And then several people commented, and very specifically, how could you possibly write a book about white flight and not talk about either crime or schools, right? Yeah. yeah. And she did. And uh, <laughs> I think, I hope that the reader responds. These are Time, New York Times readers. They're not, you know, some yahoos like, in, you, know, uh, uh, you know, reading my blog. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're respectable people. But they unloaded on her, you know, and uh, I excerpted a lot of their comments because they were so telling and so consistent. <laughs> yeah, you usually know? the, uh, especially in those publications, the comment section is oftentimes better than the article. Uh, oh, yeah. Get, get right to the point. You know, people can can understand what's happening. It's one of the reasons why they're shutting, shutting down social media as hard as they are, because people uh, have have can put two and two together. They can think critically. They have experience that they can share with people. And that, that's a key thing. But, you know, when we look at this, again, it's the, the common experience of, of the urban issue. And I think everybody needs to understand this. If you've experienced it, you know. Uh, but experience is a really expensive school. And as they say, only a fool will attend. It's the only one that a fool will attend. We don't want to necessarily experience that. And if we go down the path that they're planning to try to put everybody in cities, that's going to be an ex expensive experience for all of us. And so those people who have grown up uh, outside of cities, that, that's where I am. I never lived in a city, but I could always see it You know, when I, I got there and I understood the, uh, the issues behind it. But people who have grown up in the country, people who have uh, grown up in the suburbs need to understand there's a big target on us. They want to put yeah. us in those failed cities. And your book, Untenable, uh, does a great job of showing how this has just run roughshod over everybody. As you point out, only only attacking the white people for doing this, but everybody wants to get out of the cities. And it's these That's elite right. who want to trap everybody in the cities. Just amazing. Right, and they do it now. They, you know, in global warming, the, the global warming scare you were talking about, and totally on the same page with you on that one. That's a scam of Arizona. Mm -hmm. Speaking of rackets, yeah. uh, <laughs> but it works hand in hand, right? Because mm -hmm. you take people out of their cars, and then you force them into... Uh, you know, no, I guess we have to live in these cities, you know, and it's, uh, that's right. I, if they had their way, you know, the whole 15 minute city phenomenon was, would be their, uh, their dream. Right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You look at what they're doing in the Netherlands. I mean, they want to create this gigantic city of uh, tens of millions of people, tri-state city. They're, they're, yeah. you know, that's why they're kicking the farmers off of their land because they want to just pack everybody in the, and that's been a plan for a long time. They've been open about it. But of course, if you talk about it, it's a conspiracy theory. That's why your book Telling, you know, talking about the experiences that people have had, how this has uh, been proven to be a failure over, let's say, 60 years or so, at least. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you look at what has happened with this, um, it, it's got a proven track record. It's a horrible track record. And we don't want to be deceived into making this problem 
even bigger than it's been in the past. In the past, it's only affected, you know, the, the, the big cities, the Democrat-run cities, but they want to force this on everybody everywhere. That's the key thing about this. That's right. And, you know, and what I, what I did in the book, uh, David, and is to tell a, a human interest story. I told the story of my own family and my own friends so that I'm not just citing statistics, and I, I do a fair amount of social history in it, but uh, that uh, there's a heartbeat at the core of these old these villages that were organic mm. and they weren't forced they weren't contrived they, they evolved out of the circumstances of people coming to america and uh then they try to corrupt i mean not only to corrupt them but to control them mm-hmm. you know to control the, the the dynamics within them to prevent people from leaving to shame them for leaving you know for to to, to contort uh, the human in, uh, experiences to fit a larger agenda. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of people, as we saw with when COVID broke out, that really sh- it really surprised me how along, how quickly it fell along party lines. Yeah. You know, yeah. I expected young people to rebel against yeah. that, those kind of mandates. Yeah. But instead they were the, the sheepiest of the sheep. Yeah. Well, they it was been- very dis- disheartening. They've been conditioned, you know, when everything scary happens, they've been conditioned to lockdowns in their schools. Yeah. And they even use that same terminology. I mean, they had been conditioning them for quite a while. And of course, you know, they've been practicing their germ games for two decades themselves. It, it was a real, um, a real cynical movement. And, and so what would you say to people having experienced all of this? And, and we know that this is what they want to do to us on steroids. They want to put this whole program on steroids and do it for everybody. What is the most effective way to push back against this? Would you say it's just... just uh, That's an excellent question, David. And there's one thing uh, we can all do. And I got this sense when I was in this reparations debate last month. And that is stand up and tell the truth. Yep. You know, (laughs) too many people are afraid to speak out. I get it. You work for a corporation. Uh, you know, even when I worked in business, which I did for, I worked in advertising for about 15 years, I approached my job this way. Today will be my last day in the job. If I'm asked to do something, I don't, I, I refuse to do, right? Or I have to put up with some BS I don't want to put up with. Mm-hmm. I, so I live my life prepared to leave my job that day. That's great. I, I would say that as a general rule, you should live your life. So, or as the French said, always live on last year's income. You know, so you have a, a year of savings behind you. So when you're asked to shut up or to do something horrible or to, you know, make decisions that are counter to justice or fair play or to, uh, you can say, I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going into stupid DEI training. It's nonsense. Yeah. Or if you're in the training, you stand up and say, this is crap. You know, I, I mean, you have to be able to do that. Yeah. Once we do that, and a lot of people can and you're right, the further you live from the city, the more freedom you have to speak out. Mm-hmm. So that's why I admire guys who do like what you do. You're on the front lines of telling the truth every day. And uh, I, in fact, I wrote my book, um, my last book or, uh, about called Unmasking Obama. I celebrated what I call the Samizdat, which mm-hmm. is the Russian term for the underground press. Yep. And, and, uh, this, and during the Soviet era, people communicated through the Samizdat. They, uh, Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago is published through the Samizdat. Um, there's a conservative American Samizdat. 
Yeah. You're part of it. I'm part of it. Yeah. And during the Obama years, every major story, and that's what I did in the book, was to highlight the truth tellers, the people who broke the stories, who broke open the scandals. And in every case, they were, you know, some blogger in Arizona or some guy in Philadelphia, you know, going through his, uh, you know, the, the tapes of uh, the, uh, you know, uh, like the uh, Obamacare debates or something. And then you'd see them push, 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 push it up through the media until finally the media had to deal with it one way or another, even if it just to kind of ignore it. But mm-hmm. um, or even on social yeah, media, or even yeah. on social media, the people who are not doing the original research necessarily, you know, passing on information that they have seen. And as everybody right. starts to do it, you know, that's really kind of like the committees of correspondence. But you mentioned uh, Samus Dodd and, and Solzhenitsyn and his idea, live not by lies, you know, and, and he was ready to pack it all in even when uh, there was no alternative. You know, he was, uh, it was Soviet housing and Soviet jobs and everything. You go against the system, uh, you're out of there. But he was determined, just like you pointed out, that he's not going right. if anyone to, wanted uh, to take heart today. I would tell them to read uh, Solzhenitsyn's commencement address at Harvard and I think it was 1977. They never asked him back after that one. But but also, you know what I do? What I'm telling people is they get get their copy of Untenable. They post a picture of it with themselves on Facebook, and then they just share it with their friends, you know? Yes. Uh, Yes. And it's uh, because the Islamist that works. I mean, we have to deal with the censors and the, you know, the filters and all that stuff. But uh, the reason they have those censors and filters is because the Islamist that works. That's right. And, and that's why they're so desperate to, uh, yeah. openly now censor people. I mean, they're just, they own it. Uh, they don't even right. try to deny it anymore. Now that you've got the nope. Supreme court slapping Biden down, uh, they say, well, you know, and even have people in the press. I never thought I would see the day when people in the press are going to cheer on censorship. They've become openly nope. <laughs> open puppets of, of the, of the regime. I'll call it. You know? Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, you know, Walter Cronkite was something of a fraud, but the, uh, yeah. Walter Cronkite, we imagine would be shaking his head watching the, uh, you know, who, who are the, who's the Walter? I don't even know who's the news anchors today, but there yeah. must be someone. You mean, saying, uh, you mean they're saying that out loud? You know, we're supposed to keep this quiet. Operation Mockingbird. I, yeah. yeah, I went all those years keeping my uh, political beliefs undercover, you know, because so, yeah. uh, he was a big leftist. And he, but he did yeah. a reasonable job trying to conceal it. And yeah, you know, and yeah. Oh, he's yeah. not Chuck Todd or who else uh Joe, uh, Joe, Joe in the morning. I can't remember his name anymore. Yeah, Scarborough. Yeah, Scarborough. Oh, yeah. yeah, these these they're open puppets and they have no shame. And the government no. has no shame to violate the First Amendment, and they're getting away with it. That's why you know now is the time where everybody needs to to push back on this. They need to understand what is happening. Your book makes a great case uh, about what is truly the issue and and the city thing, uh, America's cities, and to look at the history if we want to know. You know, where we're going, you have to understand the past. They always want to try to eradicate the past so they can control the future, another Orwellian technique. Yeah. But we need to understand what has happened with the cities, how these same types of people have used that to uh, oppress and to create crime and chaos for control. And uh, if we understand our history of our cities, people are not going to as easily, I think, be fooled into this program that they're trying to impose on everybody. So it really is, it's a book about the past, but it really is about the future. And, and that's I right. That's and it's important because what happened 60 years ago is happening again today. And, uh, yeah. and we're facing the same dishonest, uh, forces, but they're even more dug in now than they were then. They then were. they were experimenting. Now they've, uh, institutionalized that dishonesty in ways that were, you're right, unimaginable 50 years ago. Yeah. 
and and, and it's weaponized with technology yeah. as well. I mean, when you yeah. look at this and, and you look at their ability to observe and control uh, movement and, and then their ability to, uh, if they get their CBDC stuff in, to be able to control what we spend. I mean, you know, we're looking at something, if we don't get wise to their game, uh, we are looking at a, a kind of tyranny that mankind's never seen before, the kind of tools that these people have. Human nature doesn't change, but the technology has uh, certainly changed. Uh, so we need to understand where we're coming from. Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities. Uh, just came out, 4th of July, uh, by Jack Cashel. Thank you so much, Jack. Great talking to you. Looks like an excellent Hey, Dave, thank, uh, thanks for having me. It was a wonderful conversation. Keep up the good work, okay? Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. We're going to be right back, folks. Stay with us. Decoding the mainstream propaganda. It's the David Knight Show.